Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. My guest today is a dynamic guy of many titles. You may not know him yet, but I'm hoping that that will change soon. His name is Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter, and Dr. Carter is an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego. He's been working in Black communities for more than a decade on food sovereignty and liberation. His new book, which drew my attention, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice, asks a provocative question, one that hasn't been asked enough. Given the harm that our food production system inflicts and has inflicted upon Black people, what should soul food look like today? 
perhaps unsurprising given his title, Dr. Carter's answer to that question merges a history of Black American foodways with a Christian ethical response to food injustice, and, by the way, includes veganism. I was frankly a little nervous to chat with him, given my position about religion in general. But as you'll see, Dr. Carter is warm and funny and inclusive. And his thoughts on the reimagination of soul food, plus the various and plentiful food injustices experienced by people of color, need to be heard. Enjoy this one. It's interesting. It's fun. It's really great. This recipe is for a different kind of potato salad. It's roasted sweet potato salad with a red pepper vinaigrette. Perfect for winter. This is not a white potato mayo thing. It's completely different. So heat the oven to 400 degrees. Take four sweet potatoes, peel them, cut them into chunks. I guess you could say bite-sized pieces. Put them on a baking sheet with a couple tablespoons of olive oil and roast them until they're crisp and brown outside and tender inside. Toss them occasionally. That should take about half an hour. I mean, it depends how big your chunks are, but yeah. So Take that pan out of the oven with the sweet potatoes and just let it sit while you prepare the dressing, which is going to be a quarter cup of vinegar. You can use sherry vinegar, red wine vinegar, a bell pepper, cored and seeded and cut into pieces. You're going to puree that. Two teaspoons of cumin, a tablespoon of grated orange zest. Puree all that in a blender or use an immersion blender. Add some salt and pepper and taste that. Make sure you like it. Toss the potatoes in a large bowl with about half a cup of sliced scallions and an equal amount of fresh mint or parsley, really whatever fresh herbs you like. You can combine mint and parsley. You can use cilantro or basil. Add some of the dressing and toss that to coat and then add some minced fresh chili, jalapeno, serrano, whatever you have, just to taste. I'd add a little bit at a time. Taste, adjust the seasoning and add some more chili if you like, salt and pepper, of course. And then serve right away or chill for a couple hours, but not for too long. And I'd bring it back to room temperature before serving. We'll just start by talking about the book, which is called The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. Congratulations. That's first of all. Second of all, how did you come to write a book that argues for the reimagination of soul food, what soul food ought to be? You know, I think it comes out of a combination of just a love of food and a struggle with identity as I decided to change what I was eating based on my ethics and morals, right? And so this for me started. In graduate school, I'm doing a PhD that's absolutely studying nothing to do with food and everything to do particularly with race and religion. And through my reading and classes, but also just the encounters I'm having with people protesting for farm worker justice in Southern California, which, as you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's so much farming here, like that's kind of around you permeating it and connecting that with the experiences of my grandfather, which I talk about in the book, it really challenged me 
ethically to evaluate what I'm eating and how I'm eating. And that was inclusive of animal products. And so when I decided to make a change, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become vegetarian is what I did at first. I really had an identity, probably crisis is probably an appropriate term. Like I really struggled to come to understand who I was on the plate because so much of my connection to home, especially being in California, so far away from where I grew up in Michigan was through the food that I was eating. And so for me, it was a process of, I think it began as a process of self-discovery of how can I make and eat the things that I know I love that allow me to feel connected, right? To that deeper sense of self and connected to that deeper sense of community. And so that's what I did. I tried to re- not only reimagine like recipes or things of that nature, because I'm, I'm not a cook, I'm not a chef, I just love to eat. It was more about why do we eat the things we eat and what's the history of that and how might we recognize that foods we've eaten have evolved over time. And so it was a personal quest that ended up being something that I'm excited to share, I guess, with the rest of the world. And what do you think soul food should look like for Black people today? Well, I think for Black Americans especially, soul food is about our identity. It's about nourishing us in that deepest sense of the word. So it has to connect with who we know ourselves to be and who we are. And so even outside of what's on the plate, soul food at its core really is about who is doing the cooking, the stories that are being shared, and the ways in which those items that are already eaten tell a story. So the challenge I have, or I guess the things what makes me think of what she's like today, that story should be a story of liberation. It should be a story of overcoming adversity. It should be a story of solidarity with those who are still trying to make a way out of no way, right? Still trying to overcome the structural barriers to equality in this country. And so for me, an ideal version of what soul food is really is a, what I call, or I'm borrowing a term, I should say, from two activists, um, Af and Silco, called Black Veganism. It's a vegan-centric version of soul food. And that's in its ideal form. Having grown up extremely very poor. (laughs) Um, That wasn't always an option, right, for me to even eat like that. And so I talk about the ways in which I think soul food ought to be about solidarity and sharing the experiences of Black folks. And so that means how might we take some of the awareness that we have of the structural inequality um, that is in our food system and ask ourselves as Black people, how can we eat in ways that actually promote and preserve our freedom and our autonomy? And so that means a kind of consistent reevaluation of the food we're eating and how we're eating it and where we're getting it from, such that it can be supportive of our long-term goals. You haven't used the word vegan yet, yet that's what you're advocating. So I'm kind of this reimagination of, or maybe better word than reimagination is evolution of soul food in America. You're saying the goal is veganism. So why? Yeah, black veganism is a term I use and and almost distinguish it between a kind of veganism that is purely centered on issues most people think with respect to just like animals. So just a brief aside, you know, I was a pastor at a church in Compton, predominantly black church. And what I noticed when I was working at this church is that many of the older black women there barely ate any meat, like didn't eat a lot of meat at all. And I asked them, because they noticed, as me being a pastor, that I was a vegetarian, and I talked about that at the time before I was a vegan, and and they were like, "Oh, okay, that's fine." And then I said, "Well, you don't seem like you eat, you know, much meat of any." She's like, "Oh, well, I'm not a vegetarian." You know, they had these ideas that these terms were really terms that were descriptive of white culture or white people or white diet. And so, what I recognize I need to do is kind of create a distinction between a kind of way of eating that perhaps 
just centers on animals as they understand it and recognize that what I'm asking people to do and what I believe I am doing is practicing a kind of veganism for the people, right? It is a way in which we recognize how the structures of animal agriculture disproportionately harm Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, right? The people who work in the factories, who do the slaughter, who are underpaid, who are consistently exploited. And that's been the history of this country. Yet all those people who live near the farms, who deal with the toxic chemicals that come from there, all those that the consequence of that system harms us more, disproportionately more than it harms others. And that has to matter. And that's our history. That's why the reason we were brought here, right? Because of our capacities with food. And so that for me is a starting point to begin this conversation that people understand why it needs to evolve. What's the food look like in your mind, in your imagination? You've also said you're not a cook. So you're you're kind of acting as a representative for cooks or as a, a thought leader for cooks, really, it seems, and eaters. I would say definitely a thought. I would like to consider myself a thought leader for cooks and eaters. I love to cook. I just would not consider myself a cook. <laughs> I'm just thinking that. So for me, it's not that dissimilar to what people eat today. And I think that's the key. It's really about making these small changes where we remove. Well, I guess I should say this. A couple of things. I can tell you what my ideal is, but I also recognize that we are going to have to talk about the structural barriers that are in place that limit the ideal, right? And so like that, those are things that are, that are deeply important, right? Because you can't really talk about one and the other. So my ideal is for people to have access to the things they would otherwise normally eat, but be able to create vegetarian and vegan versions of that. But in order to do that, they have to be in communities where those kinds of products and provisions not only are accessible, but are affordable. Right. And so this fundamentally requires a I wouldn't even say a reimagination of our food ways. It requires activists to actually create food sovereign spaces. I mean, ultimately, is what I think is what we have to do. We have to argue for and try to encourage communities such as churches, nonprofits, people that are interested in food justice to try to create either what I argue for in the book small-scale farms to actually grow food that's actually local, to hire people that are in the community to actually help grow that food, to do kind of training programs, to be able to sell back to the community. We have to then at the same time convince city councils to invest in preventing the legislative laws that are passed that allow grocery stores to kind of drop into a community and if they don't make enough money to leave and not allow them to be leased to other spaces. And we also have to create pathways for people who are on supplemental income assistance programs to be able to use that money to purchase the goods that are grown. There is no one way to fix it. It's multifaceted, multi-pronged, where people who are interested at different points can enter into this system. If you're not interested in gardening or farming or growing food, then hopefully you're more interested in perhaps some policy issues and advocating for those kinds of things, right? You know, so there's w- different ways each of us can be involved and active in it, but it, it is going to require us to really, no one's coming to save us, Mark. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no one's coming to save us. No, one, <laughs> no one's coming to save us. It. Like we got to actually begin to do these things on our own, which are things we have historically done. This is why when you look at things like the, the Tulsa race riots and we see how you have this community like that exists that's mostly autonomous, that has its own banking and food infrastructure. And as soon as we have those things, a group of folks, predominantly white, all white, who are upset that they don't have it, come and raise it to the ground. 
right? So there's been a history of Black communities, Indigenous communities, and other communities of color creating these spaces where we support ourselves. And it's a really a going back to that and recognizing, not that we would turn anyone away, for instance, like yourself who wants to be in the community to help right but it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's that you're welcome you're welcome it's, it's, it's really saying that we have to make this a priority and find a way to do it that allows us to support each other in the process i mean you're in a way talking about forming utopian communities and i think it's a different conversation or i think it's a place i don't really want to go right now because it's such a sort of tangential discussion but something i'm interested in also and you know this notion of oppressed people, obviously, in this country that that's generally meant African-Americans, but not only, and certainly globally, you know, there's always somebody oppressing somebody. And and there is this history of saying, let's just get the fuck out of here and find a place that's safe and build it for ourselves. But I want to give you the opportunity to talk about these sort of three fundamental eating practices that, that you think are at the core of the way you eat, at least. I want to push back a little bit about your notion of creating a utopian ideal and just say this i think if you were to ask i'll just keep this into western history if you were to ask peasants right in the 1600s could they actually be able to have a space where they own land and have any kind of bodily autonomy they would have said this was a utopian ideal right for me like they would say but that's not possible we live in a nation of divine right of kings right right Everybody assumed that was going to go on forever. Yeah. So I want to say that this isn't utopian as much as it is a return back to a different way of thinking about feeding ourselves and agriculture and the current system that we allow. By that, I mean by our elected officials and the people we put in power in the USDA, particularly, to make these decisions. What I think has to happen is if I just want to stick with specifically the Black community, one of the things I talk about in the book is that from 1920 up through today, there has been a 82% loss of land by Black people because of the loss of farmlands that have been illegally taken away from systematic land theft and just people losing houses. Similarly, that we just saw it happen again with the current housing crisis, right? There's always been a way in which Black people have been brought here to work the land but not own the land. So what we have to do is take the land that we do have and use it, right? Not just grow grass, right? <laughs> Actually use it. This is where I'm talking about in terms of churches and community centers and organizations and people committed to this kind of work saying like we can continue to do the, the other things that we're interested in, but land is crucial for our survival because food is crucial. I mean, as you write and as you talk about, like eating is fundamental. If you eat, you're involved in this movement. And so for me, it's about persuading people to say, how can you get involved where you see yourself fitting in? You don't have to do all the things I'm asking or all the things I'm suggesting, but there is a place for you in this movement if you are committed to the idea that Black folks should be able to flourish, that poor people should be able to have food. If you're committed to those ideals, there's a way for each of us to get active in this. And we have to get past this kind of belief that, again, someone's coming to save us or that the system can be changed to fix it. The things that I believe we have to do fundamentally start within communities, helping them understand how we can take what we have, build upon it and create something new and something powerful. And this takes time. That's why I wrote the book so I can have these ideas and I can be on podcasts like yours and go to spaces and, and talk about these things. But I, beyond a shadow of a doubt, believe this can happen. I know it in the fiber of my being in a way in which I probably can't sufficiently explain other than just say, this is something that I know to be true. I mean, I appreciate it. I didn't mean 
I don't want to be defensive either, but I didn't mean utopian in the sense of unachievable. I meant utopian in the sense of a place of peace, a place of power, a place of safety, and that different groups of people have fled from what they've seen as an oppressive society into something where they can have more control over what they're doing. And I'm not even saying that can't be urban farming in some ways, because it can. It's probably misuse of the word utopia, and it's because I've been reading a lot about it. But it just rang like that. So let's forget about what I'm getting wrong and go back to the soulful eating, caring for the earth, justice for food workers, the three most important things about food, or three guiding principles around food. Yeah. So thank you for that clarification. That's that's helpful. For me, these three principles are fundamental to the kind of vision I'm casting and, and hopefully in an ideal way persuasive to not only Black people, but to people committed or interested in their preservation and really interested in eating in a way that preserves and promotes those who are oppressed and marginalized. So when I'm talking about soulful eating, this is kind of the ideal practice that I'm referred to as Black veganism. It's eating in a way that decenters whiteness. And so by that, I mean, again, that kind of critical reflection of why am I eating this? Where did this come from? Who was involved in the processing of it? Who suffered as a consequence of this? Part of the reason I make the arguments that are inclusive of non-human animals and non-human nature in this, as I've already stated, and have it, it ties into the fact that Black people and other people of color disproportionately suffer from the animal industry, right? Like that is just fundamentally because you're right there. Another part of it is that we have to recognize that the logic, the reasoning that is used by people to justify the exploitation of non-human nature and people of color ties into this degree in which we see them as human. And so this is why the language that we see and we hear with different communities saying, well, these people behave like animals or they behave like animals, right? Like you see it, you hear it. It's to bring awareness to that. It's to borrow from the feminist movement. It's kind of a consciousness raising from your plate. It really is trying to raise your conscience in terms of how these things are impacted. And then when we get into the impacts of climate change and again, the communities that are going to suffer from that, there's all this evidence that tells us we should be eating much less meat, right? And so I'm just trying to bring that to my community in a way that I think that we can hear it, understand it, and still connect it with us as Black people with respect to soul food. And so it's bringing that kind of consciousness to the plate, to our diets. And at the same time, the way we practice this kind of soulful eating, to I would argue, is through cooking. And so it's sharing of stories. One of the things that I love that actually you should be, you can see, well, no, because I have my background screen. You can't see it right now. So my kitchen's over here to my left. My two and a half year old son has a little, his little toy mini kitchen, right? That's not a little, it's probably more money than I should have spent on his kitchen. But regardless, it's uh, (laughs) his toy kitchen right here. And so he sees his father doing all this cooking and he he sees me, I got cook two or three meals every day. And as I'm cooking, I'm and, and I'm making certain things. If I'm making red beans and rice, which is kind of an offset of multiple recipes that kind of built on what my grandmother did. And if I'm making greens and ways in which I've made minor changes to them based on what my grandmother cooked, I tell Isaiah, I talk about these things that I'm making and where I learned them, how I learned them, where I learned them from. And I tell stories. And it's those stories to me that are crucial to passing down that sacred wisdom of who we are as Black people and how we were able to survive, what we have been able to survive in this country. So soulful eating isn't just eating as a part of it, cooking as a part of it, and storytelling is a huge, huge part of it, right? In terms of what that actually looks like. Justice for food workers, it goes on the ideas that I I know I've talked a little bit about, 
with respect to those who are already marginalized within our food system. Black people were brought to America because of our agriculture and animal husbandry expertise. I know I didn't learn anything about Black history, or not like to that extent when I was in, you know, K through 12. And to a certain degree, even in undergrad, if you were to ask me or ask the average person, I would say they they probably would say that Black people were brought here just because of our labor, like our physical capacities. And they're unaware that not only was our labor stolen, but our intellectual ingenuity, our agricultural ingenuity, like it was stolen to the degree in which we actually don't know that it was our ideas. We, you know, <laughs> that we don't know that the way that we grow rice in North Carolina is an African way of growing rice, right? These things matter. And so it's about a reclaiming of an agricultural, a reclaiming of a culinary heritage to the extent that we can try to, again, recreate spaces and recreate opportunities for people of color to engage in these fields, but also to ideally help people that are in those harmful fields with adequate access to healthcare, adequate wages, adequate policies that protect them from pollution. Like this is a public policy position. We have to advocate for these things and vote for these things. And what would be an amazing thing is actually again create spaces where we can hire people away from those spaces to do other jobs. And then lastly, caring for the earth. I think it's it's self-explanatory in as much as we have to actually take care of the planet that we are on if we are going to be able to survive. Like there is no earth B. And so so much of the arguments I'm making in the first two points really supplement and underline the ways in which the care for our environment it's crucial because, again, Black people, people of color, and the elderly, quite honestly, are in the most environmentally unsustainable places. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? a tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. (laughs) 
you talk about how black veganism can help decolonize black people's diets and unlink from colonialism. And so if you want to talk about that and how eating this way prioritizes justice for and solidarity with black and other dispossessed communities. Now, as I said, I realize you've spoken to all of that, but there's some words in there that you haven't used. And I just wonder if you want to take the moment to say things in that way. I mean, really centered around decolonizing things. So I guess one thing I I do want to say with respect to Black veganism and even the way we're talking about eating in general is that for me, it is built on, I talk about this in, in the preface, this notion of compassion, which it may not be as obvious, I guess. And part of the reason I think it's important for me to start that way is I believe eating to me represents also how we want to be in the world. And I want to be a compassionate presence. And compassion isn't this kind of passive way in which we just allow things to happen to us. Compassion requires authentic understanding of the self, deep understanding of the other, and it should result in action, right? It should really have these kinds of movements, I think, in order for true compassion. And so for me, in order to be compassionate towards myself and my community, it moved me to an an exercise of practicing compassion. It literally moved me to this kind of way of eating that I'm describing as a black veganism. And again, I do want to say that I took this, I'm borrowing this term from these two sisters, Af and Silco, which they describe in their book, Afroism. And I've just, I've evolved it a little bit in that particular way. So a couple of things that black veganism does that allows us to de-link, right, from the kind of colonial dimensions of food is really investigates how I describe it as the root and scope of colonial thought, basically, because it tries to make explicit the relationship between the animal, right? The ways in which Black people and other people of color have been dehumanized through the kind of animal-like language, through being declared as three-fifths of a person, as being declared as property, right? By making that link explicit to our plates. So it's to ask ourselves, rather than responding when someone or some group or some former president calls us animals, we actually, instead of responding by saying, you know, we're not animals, we're human, it's really a challenge to say, well, I don't want to be the kind of human that dehumanizes folks, right? I can't argue for my humanity by dehumanizing. What we have to do is really challenge and problematize this notion of what it means to be human, to redefine being human in ways that are inclusive, right? And until that takes place, we need to be careful with the kind of ways in which we talk about the animal, and that particularly applies to the way we eat, right? And so we have to be mindful, and I would argue avoid eating animal products. Otherwise, we can be caught by being complicit in the structure of animal agriculture that, again, already marginalizes people of color. Second, it really it forces us to kind of think through how white supremacist thinking extends beyond Black bodies, right? And how that kind of human nature dualistic thinking that was used to justify enslavement and used to justify anti-Black racism is also the same kind of logic and reasoning that was used to and continue to be used to justify the exploitation of our environment, the exploitation of the biotic community, right? It's this kind of oppressive hierarchy where certain groups of people are allowed to exercise power over others because they understand themselves to be superior, supremacist, better, however we want to phrase it. They understand themselves to be the ideal, right? And and so it's trying to disrupt that kind of what I would call a really problematic, dualistic kind of way of thinking that we see exist in other areas too, particularly with male and female. Like that is probably the primary way it exists, actually. And third, it forces us to really take into examine the, the language of animality right? The ways in which we talk 
about oppression, the way we talk about marginalization in our own vocabulary to see how that language of animality as such, again, has been used to normalize the dehumanization of people of color. Most explicitly right now, I say you see this in what's now referred to as the school to prison pipeline in the ways in which you hear like these school officers talk about young black and brown kids in school in the way that, I mean, you, you hear the language from the police officers. It's shocking to me because it, I find it so jarring and so obvious now. To me, it, it makes all the more sense to bring attention to this kind of language and to this way of thinking that, again, is being used to justify the exploitation and dehumanization of black people. So if they're using the animal as in to say we aren't human, they're animals, black veganism is an opportunity for us to opt out of that system. Again, to begin to think critically about why those words are used and how might we develop alternative ways, alternative languages, alternative ways of, of being that resist that kind of internalized inferiority, that kind of ways in which we can be normalized. It's tough. And so I believe by doing this, ultimately, it creates conversations centered around love, centered around compassion, centered around justice. Then when we eat this way, and we think like this, we actually have these kind of conversations and it allows us to build ourselves up, right? It really gives us space to actually talk about what we can do and what we have then as a people rather than to just center on the suffering. I appreciate that. And I will say that when I wrote about Cartesian duality and the sort of fundamental philosophical roots of white male supremacy in my recent book, I found myself getting really emotional about it. And I think what you're talking about is compassion. I mean, I think that's what you mean. And by the end of writing the book, I really felt like I was a different person and that I was talking about the oneness of things, which is not like me. <laughs> it is like me now, I guess. But, but I was talking about, yeah, well, that's what ecology is about is about the oneness of things. And this sort of European duality, really the fundamental notion of white supremacy, that white males are one thing and everything else in nature is something else and inferior, that that was actually codified and, and talked about as if it could be true. It's a really shocking heritage in a way. Thank you for sharing that. Because for me, where I think that's so helpful and how I think it fits into what I tried to do in this book is tell a story and going through that kind of story of talking about the life of my grandfather and the life of all these different people I've encountered through my reading and my research. The hope is that one does leave changed, right? That you go through this process of deep examination of the past and the history and you learn about things that perhaps you hadn't learned about. And then you realize the things you need to unlearn and it moves you right? Because you allow yourself to be opened up. You're not defensive. You come at this from a posture of curiosity and it does its work on its own, right? It continues to reshape you and challenge you. And, and I think good writing does that. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that in my book, a lot of people to do that, to kind of wrestle with those kinds of deep questions of identity, because I think we all want to belong. We all want to be a part of a community, but how do we do it in a way that allows us to be lifted up rather than trying to create these artificial hierarchies based on the duality you talked about, right? That ultimately harm others. You use a lot of Christian theology and imagery and ethics to address food and to address these issues in the book. You know, to me at first, that was a little off-putting, but I got used to it. I lived with it. It was okay. But I'm curious because it's everything you're saying makes complete sense, and yet you feel that it's rounded out or enhanced or justified or something by using Christian theology as well. So talk about that. So I guess two things. First, if I were to write this book and be authentically myself, I, I would have had to share that. 
I mean, I am an ordained United Methodist clergy person, right? I, I try not to, this, I, we have sometimes this idea of this objective neutrality, which doesn't actually exist, right? There is no such thing, you know? And so I'm like, I, I can't pretend to not be who I am. And so I, I had to at least acknowledge that and name that. Although I did try, right? I begin the preface by saying, I didn't want to write this book because I had to talk about my own particular religious challenges, my own particular challenges with identity and veganism. And that required a certain kind of vulnerability that I think a lot of authors don't want to have. And because I'm writing to a predominantly Black community, like I'm grateful that people such as yourself have read the book and find it interesting and, you know, invite me into these spaces to have these conversations. The primary target audience for my book, first and foremost, is Black people. The biggest pushback I get, Mark, with respect to people, just to, to some of the ideas I'm arguing, is religion. Like, you know, Black folks, we are a more religious people. And Christianity still is a predominant religion. Even if they're not practicing like actively, it's a part of how we were raised. It's a part of how we were able to survive, I would say, in these last few hundred years in this country. And so to avoid including religion, actually, I think would have made it so the book wouldn't be as persuasive to a larger audience. I think most people who aren't Christian can kind of do as you did. It's a little off-putting, right? But you can set it aside because it's not overly evangelical <laughs> in that way, you know? It's not trying to do that, but it's trying to help people understand how this way of eating and thinking and this moral framework for how we should eat is really consistent with other moral frameworks like Christianity. And that's, I think, my hope and aim is And by doing that, I'm able to persuade even more and more people. The book is, I keep using the word persuade, and perhaps I actually should use the word invite. It's an invitation. It really is an invitation for you to, to be who I believe we're all called to be. It's an invitation into what Martin Luther King would call the beloved community, how we might actualize this way of being in the world where we see each other as human beings and create communities that are built upon love. And when you start with love, justice is honest. It's right there. It's right around the corner. It is right there. And so that's the plan. Well, that's why the compassion argument is so strong, I think. And that's a beautiful way of putting it, that if you start with love, justice is right there. It's funny, the first time I went through the book, I was a little taken aback by the Christian stuff, and I had to get over it. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been in there, and I'm not saying it's not part of who you are. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying it was my problem. And then I thought, he's just talking about morality here. He's not like asking me to come to Jesus. So I I can live with this. I mean, I have a question, but it's more about just your general impressions of the book. And actually, you did begin to answer it because I was curious as to how you received the religion piece in there. But just overall as a white person, right? Because again, I had white people read it, obviously. And interestingly, most of the white people that I encountered that really like the book tend to be people who are, who I might describe as non-Jewish Jews. So people who are Jewish of Jews and Guilty. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, secular. We, secular we prefer Jews. to say secular, secular Jews, yeah, but yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that, that makes sense then. Don't pigeonhole me, though. <laughs> I'm not centralizing you. I'm just saying, I think that tends to be a one group of folks, of white people who, who gravitate towards it. I've had some people, you know, their fragility pops up and they get, you know, frustrated about certain aspects. They're like, well, why can't you include a right to all people? You know, that kind of stuff. But that's really just my question, just your overall impressions of the book. And then just to say um, thank you for having me on. I mean, I listen to your podcast and I'm telling my wife. I was like, I was like, he must have liked the book because I don't see how I fit into this. All these famous people he has on. Like, you know, I we I didn't have a great. I had a very formal and good from a classic perspective K through twelve education, but you know, I didn't learn 
shit about justice or real history. You know, they just weren't teaching it. And we're talking the 50s and 60s in, a, in mostly white schools or schools that were 90% white. But you know, what was funny is that in Sunday school, and I was secular Jew even then, but my parents made me go. But in Sunday school, the rabbis were into the civil rights movement, and they talked about that stuff. And if you read the history, there's a lot of support for the civil rights movement by Jewish organizations in general. And so there was this way in which this one part of my education was really about justice and compassion, I guess. And then there was the anti-war movement and so many of us became political and supported Black Power, supported the Black Panthers, and so on and so on and so on. There's a little bit of that in my background. I'm not trying to heap praise on myself. Five years ago, six years ago, I was empowered to put other voices in positions where they could be heard. I organized the lecture series first at Berkeley and then at Columbia. And almost without thinking about it, the majority of people that I invited to be on panels with me or speak instead of me or speak with me or whatever, or women, people of color, African-Americans. And I guess that's who I am. So I maybe you haven't heard enough of the podcast, or maybe we haven't put enough of the sort of other voices on yet. But I mean, what we're trying to do really is have a mix of this. I interviewed Stanley Tucci this morning. You know, we're trying to have a mix of like the bait and switch operation, basically. We're trying to like Come for the famous people, but we're going to talk to you about food justice, social justice. So that's the Trojan horse aspect of the thing. As I said, I, you know, I, I had to go through the book twice, and you're better than I'd hoped. This stuff is really convincing and really interesting. I thought the book was also. That's why you're here. Well, thanks for coming and being so generous with your time. We've been, we've been here a long time. Last question, what did you have for dinner last night? So this is, this is what happens when you are the parent of a two-and-a-half-year-old and your wife is a veterinarian, you have to throw together dinners quickly. So my wife is not home most evenings, four days a week. She's rarely ever home. I love doing the cooking. It's doing the cooking while I have a very active child. So last night's dinner was pretty simple. We just had tacos with Beyond Meat. So, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Penzi's spices, so I use some of their stuff. But, you know, we have, I make my own guacamole. We had some sliced bell peppers green onions and some carrots that I sauteed, some shredded carrots, put it on the tacos. And my son absolutely loves tacos. Like, and I think, I mean, we're in San Diego. So, you know, we go, we can get, it's easy to get vegan tacos here and he can hold it and actually eat it, you know? So it's just a super easy thing to eat. And it's honestly something I can make that's quick that he likes and that he loves to help with. And it's fun to eat with him. I mean, it's, I know everybody says like, oh, he's only, you're only going to be a kid. You're only going to be a kid for a little bit. So I enjoy it. I think I enjoy eating with him as much as I almost enjoy anything else because he just, he's such an adventurous eater. The other night we had a sriracha tofu scramble, you know, again, he's two and a half. He's eating sriracha tofu scramble, you know? So like, I mean, that's the beauty. It's fun. It's exhausting and it's fun. <laughs> I loved cooking for my kids, but then I realized quite recently, I realized I love cooking for people. It's like my favorite thing to do. Anyway. Thank you so much. As I said, I appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness. All right. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be on with you. We are doing vegan recipes today, as will become obvious. And this is a one-pot pasta that I did some version of this for the New York Times probably 20 years ago. But honestly, I just had it for lunch. So we'll call this one-pot pasta with collard or kale stems, and garlic. I'm hesitating because really I make this 
by heart from scratch all the time and I just had it for lunch. So let's say this is for two. Bring a medium pot of water to a boil, add abundant salt as you normally would for pasta, and then chop the stems into half-inch pieces, the stems of a bunch or so of kale or collards. You want about a cup. If you want to use some of the green or trim the green leaves off and use the upper stems too, that's fine. Chop those, toss them into the boiling water and into that same boiling water at the same time. Toss some orecchietti or other pasta that'll take a while to cook. If you're going to use penne or ziti or rigatoni, just wait a couple minutes until the green stems start to become tender and then toss in the pasta. Use about half a pound for two people. Boil that, stirring and tasting until both the pasta and the stems of the kale or collards are tender. It'll happen at about the same time, but obviously it's more important not to overcook the pasta than not to overcook the stems of the green, which is why I said you might want to start the pasta a little later. Meanwhile, you can warm quarter cup of olive oil in a skillet with a teaspoon or two of chopped garlic, a chili if you would like. The other thing I sometimes put in here is a half a cup or so of cooked beans, whether kidney beans or white beans, up to you if you have them. And when the pasta and greens are done, drain them, save a little of that cooking liquid in case you need it, toss them with the beans and garlic and oil, heat that all together. It comes together in 30 seconds. If it seems dry, add a little bit of the cooking water that will emulsify and you're in business. Such a great standby. Thank you, thank you to the esteemed Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. You can follow him on Instagram at Dr. Chris Carter. That's D-R underscore Chris underscore Carter. And at Twitter at Dr. Chris Carter, D-R underscore Chris Carter. No space in there. His new book, which is really interesting, and if you like this conversation, you should check it out. The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice is out now. This concludes season two of Food with Mark Bittman, and I want to thank Kate Bittman and Ben Mathis for making this happen. All of our wonderful guests, which if you haven't caught up on these, you should. And we will be back and see you soon. Thanks again for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 